Russia needs a policy that is capable of putting a stop to the collapse and give new impulse to the continuation of reforms. That hits people that reforms like an avalanche because the end result will only be social explosion. The gap between the richest 10% and the poorest 10% in this country has widened substantially. But what the honourable member is saying is that he were rather the poor were poorer, provided the rich were less rich. Freedom is important to all of us. Freedom is the right to say no. There's something kind of happily rebellious about that definition. Once they start to talk about the gap, they father the gap with that. You've all said no, a most emphatic no, to mediocrity, to averageness, to timidity. You've said no to the rules of the game or the regulations of the day. You've said no to the conventional wisdom, no to the merely adequate, no to the limits and limitations on yourselves and others. You do not create wealth and opportunity that way. You do not create a property-owning democracy that way. You're a group of happy rebels. This is an illusion, another utopia. And that's extremely dangerous in politics. People are now paying a heavy price for such approaches. Just look at the price people have paid already. Fellow Americans, we're known around the world as a confident and happy people. So while it's good to talk about serious things, it's just as important, and just as American, to have some fun. Now, let's have some fun. Hello, dear patrons. So good to have you back with us. Here's the continuation of my interview with Fritz Bartel, followed by the after party. Okay, uh, I'm back here. I mean, back. We just went out to get some water and then came back. We're not in the same room. We're doing this via Zoom. Anyway, um, we're here to discuss a little bit more of the themes and maybe extrapolate from some of the themes in the triumph of broken promises. Um, I wanted to start by, I guess, emphasizing how important this 1973 to 1979 period is, um, both in your narrative and, and, I mean, in reality as well. Um, in our own work on this podcast and talking about the end of history and the end of the end of history, uh, we obviously talk a lot about 1989, the fall of the Berlin Wall, uh, the collapse of really existing socialism and, and the global triumph of neoliberalism, globalization, and so on. But that period of 1970s is so pivotal that if you're telling a, maybe a different story to the kind of Fukuyama narrative, uh, 1973 or maybe 1979, which has so many <laughs> epochal events that happened that year, seems even more important. And maybe if it's not the end of history, then it's at least the beginning of the end. Um, what are your What are your thoughts on this? I mean, I, I mean, for you, is it like 1979 is the important date when the world radically changes? Yeah, i i think I think um, I think it's certainly more important than 1989. Um, I don't, whether or not the moment of 73 or 71, the end of Bretton Woods, um, 
I, I do think after 79, 79 really is the moment at which the forces of global capital uh, gain the upper hand. Uh, and and these this process of breaking, if you, if you want to adopt my language or my framework, um, right, this is when pretty much everywhere thereafter, uh, the politics of making promises is very, very hard to maintain. Mm -hmm. And, and, and breaking promises becomes the, the order of the day. Yeah. Uh, and, and that's partially an ideological, of course, a story, it's partially a, a story of raw financial and economic power. It's undergirded by US military presence. Um, I don't, what I one of the things I try to draw out in the book is that it's not though just a purely a story of of course of the United States imposing this on other forces around the world right depend because ironically surprising to me the you can find these uh, some things that that can look like neoliberalism or at least look like the politics of breaking promises behind the Iron Curtain from officials that are not. Uh, uh, in any way under any kind of pressure from the IMF or, or the mm, US, right? Yeah. And so, so there seems to be something about uh, the twin forces of industrial stagnation and global financialization uh, that, that start to unfold after 1979 or, or 1973 that, that really um, uh, changed the United States or, or the financial, the, the representatives of global capital in yeah. the driver's seat after 1979. Yeah, yeah, no, and, and you're rhyming, you had already said earlier as well, I mean, which is important to underline that it's not the US as a nation state purely and, and all its peoples who are beneficiaries of this. It, it, that whole right. context relies on a lot of economic discipline at home. Um, so right. uh, it, it's really US capital that's the winner and you know Western capital right. more broadly that, that wins. Um, I want to talk a little bit more about this idea of kind of breaking promises in our world in which, well, at least for, for a good part of the 30 odd years of the 40 total of, of the neoliberal epoch, um, which was based on not just needing to break promises, but actually ideologically flaunting your ability to break promises. I mean, that, that suddenly became the new basis for legitimacy, um, which, is, which is a really striking, uh, really striking reversal. Um, but just, just before that, I wanted to maybe look at this 40 years of neoliberalism, at least you know, bookended by those epochal events of 1979 on the one hand, and then the pandemic uh, on the other. Uh, and there seems to be a sort of an intellectual moment now, which is something that I mentioned in, in my review of, of your book, which is, and, and you know, your book is a major contribution to this, um, which, which is this kind of, yeah, this owl of Minerva moment, looking back at, at what neoliberalism was, so we can speak of it in the, in the past tense, and also talk about the beginnings of neoliberalism. There's been a lot of books published now about um, what neoliberalism is, trying to examine it but it's threading it through from the original thinkers through to uh, its original implementation or your book, which um, looks at the rise of neoliberalism. Uh, what do you think, if you can comment maybe speculatively, what do you think is the kind of lesson that's being taken from this as um, lots of scholars and thinkers look back at this and go, okay, this is a, a like a, a distinct period that we can bookend and what is the meaning that's being taken from it? Um. Yeah, I, d I don't know. 
if I have a, a good answer, I mean, my, I think maybe the lesson from my book, one of them might be the conditions under which making promises uh, was ever successful, right? Even though it's, that's not really the subject of my book, right? But what did it require for there to be two visions? It, it, in a sense, the geopolitical competition of and the ideological competition drove at least the democratic capital side to make more promises to to provide mm. more uh, equality than it would have otherwise, right? And I think this this is a bit of this is in Gary Gerstle's account of the neoliberal order too. I think um, this this idea that as long as you had an ideological adversary that was promising that and, and offered a credible vision of a socialist future, which starts to break down in the 70s and 80s, uh, you had to make promises. You had to to at least give some um, uh, you know, give something to the forces of a, a broader, uh, equitable, uh, just society. Uh, and, and when you don't have that credible alternative, uh, there's nothing constraining yeah. uh, the political system. Right. And so, uh, I mean, because I'm, I come at it from an international relations perspective, the the only thing I can hope for is that as we enter a more geopolitically competitive environment, that may uh, provide more reason to return to a politics of making promises yeah. uh, than you would get otherwise. This is an argument that Michael Lind, who's been on the podcast before, has actually made amongst other people um, that, you know, perhaps it will take, you know, growing, growing geopolitical competition with China, for example, uh, to force this. I'm, you know, I'm, I'm not entirely convinced. And I, I guess the, the issue is that the other part of this puzzle is precisely the fact that that, you know, enemy within in, in quotation marks has been defeated. Um, and that, yeah. you know, even for all the talk that there's an upsurge in, in uh, labor activism and tightening of labor markets, we're still a very, very long way from even where we were in at the end of the 1980s, or even the 1990s right. in that regard. Right. Um, yeah. But I, I guess one thing which which I, I like that you raise and is a point that I kind of like to hammer home is the exceptional nature of the making promises period, right? That yeah. the, 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 the idea that that is somehow a, a natural, you know, order of capitalism from which we've deviated and which we might want to return to, which some of, I guess some of the left, maybe certainly kind of, you know, social democratic or democratic socialist left likes to portray, um, ignores the, you know, essential conditions which made that possible. And, and, and you know, the geopolitical competition is important in terms of imposing elite discipline. But um, there was a whole and, range of, of political economic uh, configurations which allowed that to be possible, not least fast growth in which a sort of win-win was possible. And and your book, I think in a way, actually, I don't think I ever said this in the review and I, I actually wanted to, but it's also a little bit of a story about what happens when win-win ends. Uh, and then it yeah. becomes, you know, a zero sum game and who's able to take advantage of that. And Western capital yeah. and its political representatives were able to, and in the East, you know, they, they didn't find a, a way through that. Yeah, absolutely. I was going to mention that as well. And, and you brought that out in the review, uh, very well, and I think more clearly than it's than it's in the book. Uh, this exceptional period of forty five to seventy three, and and the other thing I, uh, when I was writing the the very end of the book, I was tempted 
because um, I have this graph in the conclusion about uh, this guy, the J- John Hoskins wrote down this line of the West, which is just an upward sloping line of, of uh, real GDP per capita as his kind of proxy for what the West means, which is an interesting idea on its own um, <laughs> yeah. in purely material terms. <laughs> Uh, but, it's kind but of a preposterous graph, but yeah, like, yeah something that's yeah, been sketched on yeah, a napkin, like, but yeah. Yes. Well, and I, I wanted to, inc- they really did. I mean, he literally taped it on the piece of paper because that's what you had to do, I guess, in 1980. Um, but uh, different times, I guess. Uh, anyway, what I was going to say was when I was writing the very end, I, I ended it by saying, Right. How we can, uh, and you mentioned this, how states can, and, and the promises to all their citizens uh, would one day align was, uh, is, is something that, that we, is a challenge kind of after Broken Promises have triumphed. And the book, and, you know, I, I'm inadequate to the task of, of trying to figure out how exactly that would be true. But the point was to say that there never actually has been a time when all even the poly, even the period of making promises wasn't for everyone, of yeah. course, right? Um, uh, it was it was built around a particular understanding of uh, the heterosexual white male breadwinner family, um, and that's kind of how it was it was uh, constructed. And so, uh, yes, I, I agree. It's it was both economically exceptional in the sense that it was win win. It wasn't uh, based on uh, truly a politics for everyone. And, and therefore going back can't be the answer. Uh, it has to be some version of, of going forward. Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, and, and now we're confronted with a world, which I, some people have described, you know, the new neoliberal state and society is hard, but hollow, um, which is to say hard because it's fortified against pressures from below its means of repression have grown. Uh, in fact, the absolute size of the state has grown, but, but at the same time, hollow in the sense that civil society has been, neutered or reduced. And then the hollowness is actually that space that exists between rulers and rules, state and society, uh, politics and people. Um, what's funny about this, it, I mean, it only occurred to me kind of re reading my notes that I'd taken on, on your book is that this hard, but hollow could also have described, I mean, that hard, that hollow that has, that, that has ensued could also be used to describe the Eastern Bloc countries ironically it just occurred to me and it was like well Absolutely. that in a way is, is is a way to join up the sense of you know the kind of uh, post so uh, not excuse me late soviet sort of atmosphere that the west finds itself in um and uh, and the actual reality of what late soviet life was like or society was like yeah that's that's absolutely true and and you know one of the things i've thought of um it, it's not in the book but uh when it Really, Reagan and Thatcher and the, the the original neoliberal turn depended was they didn't say this, but they were depending on the thirty years of social democracy or the the golden age that had come before them. In terms, if if you take my argument that legitimacy or social trust mattered to it and some connection between government and the governed, uh, right? They were they were implicitly relying on the trust that had been, and the, the, the moves towards equality that had been built up before. So, right. They hollowed out the, the state and society, but they were doing it from a, a, a state and society that was not yet hollowed out. And so now yeah. we are, we, right. The, 
if we were to do, you know, a new politics of breaking promises, uh, like if you just keep rerunning the same thing over and over again, you don't have any of the kind of social reserves that had been built up yeah. in that initial, in initial, in the initial time in which it, it at least, uh, it, it, it was, it was first pulled off, I guess. Yeah, no, and uh, one point which which is really interesting because it's often portrayed that you know the, the welfare state stood totally in contrast to neoliberalism, and neoliberalism was attack on the welfare state, and it was, but it was also the a, a means by which uh, economic discipline was able to be imposed because there was still, I mean, certainly in Western Europe at any rate, there was an element of a safety net which was being withered away, but was there, which yeah. allowed them to impose that economic discipline, especially in the form of the unemployment that surged as a consequence of uh, of high interest rates. Right. And so and so there is yes. and so there's a sort of parasitism on what came on the past that allowed the neoliberals to get away with it, uh, you know, so to speak. Right. Right. I, I think and I, I quote in the book that right social spending across the OECD tips up a little bit from 16 to 18 percent over the over the 1980s. Um, but that's also for much, much larger numbers of, of people. Um, and so I, I think the welfare, yeah, I, I, I use terminology, something like the welfare state became an ally of, of the process of breaking promises, because unlike in the Eastern Bloc, where many of the social services and social insurance and things like that, and, and just, uh, 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 yeah, the social services associated with your work were provided by the companies themselves. And so if you shut down the company, you wouldn't have an independent standing welfare state to exist or some, some form of support that was not tied to your employment. Uh, that, that does exist in, in a stronger form in the West and it therefore allows th- this process of breaking promises to unfold in a way that it, it just couldn't or turned out that it couldn't in the East. Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, yeah, which is another little, I guess, a key into that, into that, um, you know, pivotal sort of decision that that happens, you know, or it happens in one place and doesn't happen in, in the other. Um, yeah. I, I, I think the question of legitimacy, I think it's probably one of the most important political questions today. And I think, you know, however you want to chart it um, or measure it, regime legitimacy for Western states is lower than it has been in, in well, since the Second World War, um, at the yeah. very least. And the basis for that legitimacy can no longer be obviously just continuously rising wages and standards of living that, you know, was which kind of um, characterized the Fordist Keynesian period of the post-war social democracy and so on. Uh, the technocratic management of globalization, where you just have to adapt your policies to these sort of quasi-natural economic forces of globalization, that's not impossible. That's no longer possible. And now you have inflation, which is back, um, you know, mainly as a, as a consequence of supply shocks rather than rising wages, you know. Um, mm-hmm. And th- that situation, I think, will present Western policymakers. I don't want to, you know, predict, oh, some kind of mass sort of, ex- you know, popular explosion. But we're mm-hmm. in really uncharted territory here because, you know, people like to kind of use these terrible historical analogies and, and so say, oh, this is like the 1970s again. But actually, it's very much not like the 1970s again. And I, the, probably the most fundamental aspect is that the foundations for the legitimacy or the foundations 
that allowed Western elites to break promises back in the 1970s or the 1980s um, are gone. And it's and I think that's in two ways. One is that obviously that democratic legitimacy is all but gone. So there isn't the trust um, that might be a lot, you know, if, if, if Western elites say, you know, you just have to tighten your belts a bit and then growth will uh, growth will ensue after a while. No one's buying that today. I mean, we, you know, that has been bought. There has been consent given to those politics or at least enough resignation that those politics were um, able to be applied, certainly post the 2008 crisis, right? Um, you know, everyone tighten your belt, you know, we've overspent. So, you know, we just have to take this and then growth will ensue. No one in 2022, I think, is buying that. Um, at the same time, um, the situation is potentially easier for Western elites because although they don't have that degree of legitimacy, um, labor has been defeated. So in theory, it's easier because you don't have the resistance that there genuinely was in the 1970s and through the 1980s to neoliberal restructuring. So anyway, this is a long-winded way, I guess, of, of, of setting up a question, which I'm not sure what it is yet, but I mean, I guess just where do you, where do you see this going, you know, in this kind of seemingly 1970s situation of, of inflation, but actually radically different one? Yeah, it, I do agree. It, it is uh, very, very, very different. Um, I, you know, I see, unfortunately, I guess, um, that the inflationary challenge of today and how uh, it, by all accounts, the Federal Reserve and every other central bank is about to try to handle it or has already started to try to handle it, um, you know, produces a recession in the next 18, 18 months that deepens social division, that uh, deepens distrust, that disrupts politics even more than they, they have before. And so uh, one of the ways that I've been thinking about geopolitics over the next three to five years is which of kind of which area of, uh, it's, a, it's not a very it's unfortunately not an optimistic way to think about it, but which which geopolitical center can withstand disruption caused by economic downturn, yeah. right? China, uh, it, particularly if it's holding to uh, zero COVID policy, uh, particularly if slow slower growth is kind of the the new normal. Russia under sanctions, uh, which don't appear to be uh, ending anytime soon, and Europe and the United States about to uh, you know, by all uh, accounts, go through a contractionary period where politics is already significantly on edge. Uh, the possibility of significant change in all three of those places seems very, very likely to me. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and that's, you know, that's count one of the, uh, my book doesn't, as a historical account, doesn't really offer I make no claims and, and I would disown any idea that it, it's predictive in any way. But the, maybe the most, the broadest one that it does say is that political change seems to happen most when economic down, when, when the, when economic fortunes, right? When it goes from not a win-win to someone, yeah. a win-lose, yeah. right? And, and so um, we seem to be about to enter that, that uh, if we haven't already, uh, we're we're entering that that period uh, once again, and yeah, and that, I mean at least I mean the popular half of the win equation um, hasn't really been a win, it, but it has been based right. on 
uh, ever cheaper commodities. I mean, if you look at the prices of TV, how they of TVs, how they've fallen over the past decades, um, and you know the availability of consumer credit to consume those things, and indeed, actually, probably even more recently, the kind of convenience that it has provided at least the middle class uh, in terms of you know app based delivery and and things like that, which yeah. is also a, a, coming apart. You know, these are completely unprofitable. So I think, and yeah. and and so the legitimacy that has been there has been based on consumption, effectively, not not on rising wages. Right. Um, right. And again, only for a certain section of society. I mean, for let's say the broad broader section of the middle class, um, and that might be coming to an end <laughs> very briefly. You know, with with, with inflation, with uh, yeah, you won't be able to you know rely on Ubers anymore if that kind of completely falls, the business model falls apart, and so on. Um, so I think that's quite that's quite stark. Um, and and that brings me around to to uh, actually something I want to take from the book, which I thought was um, which was great. I think that you, you kind of dug this. Out. Alexander Yakolev, the Politburo uh, member and uh, a pusher of democratization, where he says, mm-hmm. you know, uh, you know, dem- people think that democracy is liberalization and so on, but no, democracy is discipline, <laughs> and it's so stark, and it's it's great. I mean, I certainly insofar as democracy refers to you know kind of liberal parliamentary democracy i think there's a truth to that um because now as capitalism finds itself you know stagnant uh delivering less in terms of innovation um and doesn't really promise ever greater freedom i mean especially after the lockdowns and the whole pandemic management i think it's hard for you know i i don't i don't, I don't think kind of capitalist ruling class anywhere is really premising their claims on some expanded freedom. Um, I don't think that's, you know, that's being done anywhere. And so in that context, it seems that the kind of last remaining defense is coercion, you know, how to get people to, how to get people to work. That's what capitalism kind of now relies on as a, as a justification for itself and just the simple absence of any alternative. Um, And so I, I, in that context, um, and with the possibility of, you know, of what we were just talking about, uh, uh, of the fact that rising inflation and so on will, will probably radically alter the terms of consent, the, the remaining consent that is given to governments. Um, I wonder whether, you know, at least we'll turn to sort of making some sorts of promises again, um, because there, there is nothing, there's nothing else effectively. Well, I, I don't, I don't know how you read it. I, I mean, you can you can look at various forms of uh, the right and left today as making uh, promises for certain sections of society, almost almost a vision that because you can't have or they they seem to have given up on making any kind of broad based promises. Yeah, yeah, right. And so instead, may, you you stake out the section of society for which you are you know that you are trying to defend or. or advance their interest or something like that. Uh, I, you know, Trumpism being an yeah. obvious example of, of this, right? But, th- but this type of politics, I think, has, has expanded particularly on the right in many, many places. And, uh, and it does in many places, not so much the United States, although the rhetoric of Trump did, it, um, it involved a kind of new politics of making promises for a particular set of people, right, who had been left behind by the neoliberal era. Uh, And so uh, I don't see, um, I mean, those, those right wing visions do seem to be 
the right seems to have picked up on this idea that you need to offer something that uh, a new politics of making promises. Yeah. Uh, the, the, the left kind of a Bernie Sanders type of vision uh, has picked up on that, but of course he has not, uh, he, he didn't, he didn't prevail. And so uh, it remains to be seen whether or not uh, that type of vision can ultimately uh, win out in, in the United States, at least. Yeah, yeah. No, I think that's right. And um, I mean, I'm not even convinced entirely that the left is set on making promises because a lot of it is either sort of catastrophist, um, worrying about the worst. And I mean, particularly in light of climate change, but, you know, not really offering a vision of responding to climate change, which would also involve higher standards of living. Um, so, you know, there's a lack of promise making there. And then the other element is that it, promises things to those it finds, you know, wants to cast as victims, but it ends up not being the kind of universalist appeal that you're saying, you know, is lacking, I guess, both on right and left. Um, and actually brought to mind what you were saying about Trump, actually, the British Conservative Party is effectively a party which makes promises to pensioners, <laughs> to the retired and the elderly, um, that, the, you know, asset prices will continue inflating, that they get higher pensions and house prices will increase. And that's about it. Um, and they can rely yeah, on it because yeah. they vote more, uh, the elderly than, than anyone else. Um, right. Yeah. But, uh, but anyway, I mean, so I, I think I want to underline, I guess, just to round this out, how, uh, how important your book is, uh, that people should go out absolutely and buy it and read it. Um, and it just allows you imaginatively, if nothing else, it does much more than this, but imaginatively puts you in the mind of what the world was like before neoliberalism, in which there was a competition mm. over different promises of industrial modernity, which now have disappeared, but which, uh, at least from my perspective, is something that needs to be seized uh, once again. Well, I appreciate that. That's, uh, you know, works of history, I hope, uh, can offer us visions for for alternatives, and ironically, I, I, I'm a bit concerned myself that my book doesn't, offer, you know, it, it narrows or tells the history of this narrowing of vision, but perhaps by uh, by pointing to what came before, uh, as you said, it it can kind of take people back to a time when there there was true competition over over these different versions of industrial modernity, and and tells the history of why that uh, why those versions were lost, why that race why the world stopped racing to make promises and turned to turn to breaking them. Yeah. Fantastic stuff. Fantastic stuff. And I'm sure it'll uh, create a lot of discussion actually uh, precisely on, on these grounds. So, um, well, all the best on the book Great. launch and thank you for, uh, for coming on and we'll have to have you on at some point again to discuss these things further. That, that'd be great. Thanks so much, Alex. Okay, great stuff there. I hugely enjoyed talking to Fritz. Uh, as I did enjoy reading the book and reviewing it, uh, I, it's rare that I read a book like that uh, about issues and uh, history that I think I know at least reasonably well, the contours of it, but which quite significantly changes my thinking on it, or at least introduces new concepts to think through an old story, um, which, yeah, I, I kind of haven't been able to get it out of my head since I read it. So anyway, I think that's a mark of... Uh, at the very least, some very serious scholarship. Um, before uh, George and Phil say what they have to say, I mean, I'm sure they have plenty to say, actually. Uh, I wanted to just maybe reiterate 
what a strange experience it was reading the book. I may have mentioned this in the interview. I, I certainly mentioned it in my review to read a book um, by someone whose political commitments are completely opaque to me in reading the analysis. Normally you read a book and you're like, okay, this guy's, you know, a kind of progressive liberal, blah, 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 where this guy's a left communist or this guy's a hardcore neoliberal. And it was really hard to uh, glean that from, from the book through most of it, which I think is testament again to, to, um, to the scholarship and to the writing itself. Uh, and also, as I say, throughout to its hard headedness, to its realism. So that, um, you know, that realism can be a position which can be staked from both the uh, neoliberal right, as well as from the far left and various different corners of it. So I thought that was very interesting. Um, it was a different experience for me. Yeah, it's, um, I mean, it was a great, I thought it was a great discussion, though I have to say I felt for, um, I felt for Fritz when you kept on kind of coming in, interrupting him over. Well, the thing is, Phil, I, what I really needed to, to say here was that. <laughs> like a 14 year old that's going to come too quick, Jesus Christ. It was, um, I mean, I thought there was so much here that was kind of um, worth thinking about more. Um, not least kind of specific points that I thought are worth kind of, um, you know, kind of worth extracting and restating, like the fact international capitalists bet on the authoritarianism and stability of Eastern Europe, underestimating, in fact, capitalist, democratic capitalist societies themselves and their ability to absorb um, the kinds of privations that were coming um, in the era of the 80s and the 90s. I do, and also, I mean, I suppose one thing that, you know, I mean, I was I was vaguely familiar with some of the stories about the, you know, the fact that Eastern Europe was such a drain on the USSR, the fact that they were so indebted by the end of the Cold War and how important this was to the restructuring that came. But there were also points which I thought were genuinely like original to any of the scholarship that I've um, encountered with respect to the Cold War, such as this point about the significance of the coincidence of the Volcker and Reagan shocks um, and how that affected the Latin American debt crisis. So the fact that the rise in American interest rates at the same time as your deficit spending kind of sucking in um, all the capital from around the world into America and setting off the um, what would become kind of uh, reinforcing America's primacy at the center of the international system. I thought that was brilliant because you could imagine kind of a world in which those two things didn't coincide at the same time, though they, you know, that was the direction of travel kind of historically at that point. But the fact that they did coincide at the same time nonetheless had dramatic effects. So I thought, anyway, I mean, I, insofar as the balance between um, deeper underlying forces and just kind of random historical contingency, how that worked out, that seemed to me the way he presented it mm. really compelling and important. Yeah, I mean, <clears throat> that point about $90 billion of, of debt um, in the Eastern Bloc to the capitalist world, I mean, this is, I guess it's a, it's one of those facts that, you know, you, you sort of know before, but then <clears throat> to really add some of the context to it and and develop the political significance it you know it is it is really really striking i guess one question that i wanted to or the thing that really made made me think about was <clears throat> what is that what's the politics of of making and breaking promises today because obviously there are some similarities um we might well be in a situation of um increased privations of cost of living crisis of um you know being being asked to uh absorb some some economic uh, troubles um as a citizenry of western or you know li li i was going to say western but we're not all all western some of us are in the global south 
there but that's actually west of where where i am so i'm not quite sure how to make it what to make of that anyway my point was going to be yeah i mean just like what exactly is the politics of making and breaking promises in in contemporary context in the contemporary context where maybe we don't expect anybody to keep their promises in the first place politicians that is indeed yeah i mean i was i thought so that was something that struck me was the fact that you know, so when you guys were talking about what the if the analysis gives us any pointers as to what happens next, it seems to me one thing that's missing is the fact they don't really make promises now, you know, and certainly not on the scale of the promises that were made in the kind of uh, high period of the Cold War, where you had the intensity of competition on which social system could deliver the, the future, like in the Nixon-Khrushchev kitchen debate in Moscow. And so if they don't make those kinds of promises, it seems to me that it's very difficult to expect the same kinds of political pressures put onto um, put onto governments today. But maybe I missed something. Yeah, well, no, no and I guess so. Go on, Alex. Well, just to elaborate on what these promises mean, I, I, Fritz explained it a little bit, and I think, but it comes clearer much more so reading the book. Which, as I put it in my review, it's not just a matter of, you know, kind of campaign promises or saying, hey, we're going to improve, you know, raise wages or we're going to build this bridge. It's about an institutionalized mode of rule in which expectations are constantly rising. Um, and it's so in, it's like inscribed into the institutions of the state and forms of rule. So it's not like yeah, I, I, all I'm, all I, I, the only reason I say this is to um, not kind of misguidedly portray this as a kind of like, oh, someone goes up on the pulpit and says, hey, um, you know, I'm going to give you such and such. No, no, that came, I mean, that came across. I mean, yeah. Yeah. Um, But I think, I think you're right about the the fact that, you know, promises aren't made and people don't believe in promises. We're discussing this actually on the 6th of July, just as it seems the Tory government in Britain is falling apart with a whole bunch of resignations. And I think that might be an interesting um reference point just because there you know johnson and the tories were elected on the promise of getting brexit done yeah indeed they did it sort of you know brexit in name only but they got it done and then people maybe got accustomed to uh, or or maybe took on the suggestion that there would be more state intervention that there would be uh rebalancing and and so on lockdown right and then well yeah yeah, exactly. And but also also kind of greater regional development funds and things yeah, like that. Longer and term it's not stuff. Really, yeah, and sure. it's not really been delivered from what I can tell. So No, indeed. And I mean I would say it was more than Brexit and name only, given the content of the deal that was finally cut with the EU. But nonetheless, kind of in institutional terms and certainly in terms of the way in which the elite relate to society, um, I would say it's still very much a member state and I don't think that would be controversial among um among uh, kind of um, politically minded Brexiters. That notwithstanding, it's, I mean, it's interesting because it's a government that's cracking apart over its inability to deliver promises. And I imagine the conclusion that many politicians will draw from from what's happening in Britain, or at least British politicians, will be, this is what happens when you try to offer promises. And their conclusion will be not to try and deliver on promises, but to try and avoid getting trapped in delivering promises. They simply cannot. I mean, so the government, for the listeners who aren't following this, the government at the moment, it's endured a slew of resignation from senior figures. And as we're as we're talking at the moment, it's unclear whether Boris Johnson will be able to survive this um, series of resignations from the cabinet. Um, But it's all over whether or not he knew about the sexual um, 
peccadilloes of one of his um, whips in the Tory party. And just to be clear, there are no allegations of any criminal behaviour, just sexual impropriety and this kind of thing. And it's all hinged around whether or not he knew about the behaviour of this um, deputy, deputy Tory party whip. So it's an astonishing, astonishingly weak um, hook on which to kind of turn the um, uh, this government. But it does seem to what's underlying it really is their simple inability to deliver um, in any kind of meaningful way. And that's really striking. And so that is, is that the vindicate. fact, sorry, I just wanted to ask you, but like, is that a re reflection of the fact that the opposition also doesn't want to hold the government to account for things that they promised and didn't do? Because they, Indeed, that yeah. would open so them they, up it's all up. A, Yes, exactly. So it's all about kind of morals, personal morals, um, the ethics of lying, you know, can can this government be, you know, can the government do this, can the government do that in terms of what it says to the public, but nothing about, it's not as if there there is, um, you know, kind of uh, the, the Labour Party are offering to outbid the Tories in terms of um, catering to the working class constituents that delivered the Tories their enormous majority only a couple of years ago. Yeah, I guess there's um, a bit of a like to zoom back to the to the book or zoom out back to the book. There's a, you know, the, the context is very obviously very different today. There is no competition between like two different world systems. There's there's no underlying context of rising expectations. If anything, we're definitely the only promise which is made more or less implicitly at the kind of like I guess standard of living level or like overall economic expectations is you know, you're going to be eating, eating the bugs and living in the pod. I mean, this is the, the, the background, I guess, of the, the kind of economic promises, which um, Western governments are, are, can, can then end up making. So maybe, you know, maybe it is a kind, it's not surprising that that promise frame then gets put on individuals, trustworthiness, probity, or lack thereof. Um, and so you can kind of, you can kind of, you know, maybe tell us a bit of a, you know, a story there, not, not, you know, I guess extrapolating quite a bit, the promises go from the kind of the systemic level, rising expectations embedded in systems to individual personalized, like figures who are more or less, you know, everyone's got, everyone's got problems and everyone's got, no one's perfect. So you can always pick people apart. Yeah, so I mean, you, you, mentioned... I've got to say, you got to love peccadillos, you know. I mean, as a word, but also as a practice, I'd say. <laughs> so, well, and, and whips and guys named Pincher. <laughs> yeah, that's this the is, name this of is the British Tory, politics. Of the Tory whip, indeed, yeah. So, I mean, Fritz made the point that the, you know, the right, the populist right has kind of framed its politics at the moment around implicit broken promises to so-called left behind kind of Rust Belt constituencies and so on. Um, but beyond that, there's no, you know, there's no attempt to kind of restore that politics of promise making. And it seems to like, and that's striking that the left is, you know, unable not only to kind of cater to the left behind, but unable to kind, you know, to break out either of the, is unable to formulate kind of a politics of promises either. And that is interesting in itself, I think. And that must surely be the test of any, of any um, any politics worthy of the name at the moment would surely you know need to be able to engage in that kind of in that kind of politics of um, yeah. meaningful kind of offering meaningful things and showing the ability to deliver on them. Yeah, and the ability to deliver has to not just be a technocratic thing because I think that's how how these things often play out. It's like 
because because the left gets stuck in a media game debating the right um, and the right, I mean, just the establishment, it could, they could be formally center left or whatever. But the point being that um, they are at, you know, at pains to describe that they are responsible governors and that they will be able to get this done with the right, you know, within the fiscal frameworks that are set out and all the rest. And that isn't exactly what you're describing, as far as I can tell, Phil, right? You know, the ability to deliver means in many ways breaking those bonds. And it's interesting because if I contrast that form of, well, you know, that, that, that very limited restricted form of politics you have, like a little bit with, with maybe what I know from like South America is that the, certainly the kind of centrist, center right critique of promise making is that this promise making is still going on in Latin America. And the, and the whole problem with Latin American politics and all the debt that's been created is because of too many um, exaggerated promises that are made by irresponsible politicians of left and right. Um, you know, promises to their constituencies and so on. Yeah, it's the um, classic critique of populism, Latin exactly. American populism. Yeah. Um, but nowadays, I don't know if that's, you know, if, if even that's the case in Latin America anymore. Um, and it certainly isn't something that uh, Lula, for example, is promising in, in Brazil, uh, which we'll talk about in, in future episodes. Um, but anyway, I think th- there were some other issues, Phil, that you wanted to bring well, up. Well, just, I mean, I wanted to, I suppose, kind of stage, or at least for the benefit of listeners, kind of draw attention to a um, clash between what Fritz kind of expects, which is he sees, he suggests that of the three kind of major poles of the world, the West, in the US and Europe, in Russia, and in China, that all of them are going to endure in across the 2020s are going to endure significant difficulty, given the new material conditions of the global economy, um, great rivalry, slowing economic growth, and so on. And that seems to be at odds with um, what um, our another interviewee of ours, Richard Sakwa, suggested in episode 270, um, a couple of weeks back, where he said he expects, um, he, he thinks that uh, not only the Russian state, but Putin himself will be able to, um, you know, ride out the sanctions and ride out the geopolitical conflict, and that Russia will adapt effectively to a new, newly kind of autarkic regime. So, I mean, I think this in terms of the possible scenarios emerging from the discussions that we're having on, on this podcast, those are two scenarios for the future of world politics uh, I think we should keep in mind both us and our listeners should keep in mind George yeah I mean a slightly a slightly separate point that I think is one thing that really um, I took away from from the interview in particular was this idea that it was the west that was able to impose economic discipline more more not the east like this is and this is really goes counter to the kind of the, the stereotype picture that you have of like the cold war um combatants and the you know mm. which is obviously ideological in itself this idea that the soviet union had you know the, uh, all of the all of the citizens under its under its uh thumb and could do whatever it wanted um but actually it, it that's not the way that it, it happened at all and i think fritz's argument is really interesting there particularly the role of like Democracy generates legitimacy and trust in the in the outcomes or, or the, the things that which are said to be constraints, and you didn't have that mechanism in the um, in the in the east. So I wonder if it's if it's kind of like, and I don't think this is what he was arguing, but if if this argument could be purposed to be a kind of like this is the cost of democracy. Democracy is not that great because it means you trust 
your leaders and they're going to impose economic um, discipline on you and worse standards of living. So democracy yeah. is a bad thing. It makes me so it makes me think about the current moment as well, because you didn't you go you, uh, Alex and Fritz, that is, didn't really pick up on this. Um, or at least I would have been interested to hear more about it, um, given what was said. So, you know, Fritz made the point that neoliberalism basically ran down the assets that had been accumulated by the welfare state and by all the kind of infrastructure and so on. The kind of the large investment state of the, you know, of the Trente Glorieuse. And I think the similar point can be made about the politics of neoliberalism, that it could only really succeed um, in terms of the promises that Thatcher and Reagan made of national renewal, um, breaking apart kind of opposition, you know, they could only do that by making promises that their um, followers were unable to make, given the way in which neoliberalism kind of restructured politics and broke apart the politics of promise making. And so that, you know, I'm, he, this figures he gave for the support for Thatcher during the miners' strike, really, really, I thought, um, you know, kind of they stuck with me not only support for the police or, and, and Thatcher, and contrast that with the um, with Brexit. You know, so you think of the kind of the greatest and most bitter and intense moment of social conflict in the 1980s, and you still had such tremendous support for the government and also the police, and there is some, simply nothing like that, yeah. both in the, in the politics of Brexit and in the aftermath. The degree of division is um, much, you know, is much more enduring. And so, I think, you know, that there is that probably those, the result of neoliberalism means that there isn't that capacity to um, use democracy to enact certain kinds of measures as they would have been able to in the past. Yeah, yeah. No, I think that's, I think that's well put. It's, it is parasitic. Neoliberalism and the breaking of promises was parasitic on, um, yeah, I think that's, you know, was parasitic on the welfare state, ironically. Ironically, it is a big irony. Um, and yeah, that, that um, basis now isn't available to anyone. And I think this connects a little bit to the point that I made with regard to the sort of last defense of capitalism, right? That it doesn't promise freedom. It doesn't promise democracy. Uh, what it's left is coercion. Like, yeah, okay, but if we didn't have capitalism, no one would go to work. And ironically, with the great resignation, you're seeing that even within capitalism, people got a taste of what life might be like when they were working from home, for example, and decided actually maybe even living with less income, that is still preferable to actually having to show up to my drudgery um, every day. Um, and I, again, it, it's, it ends up being an individual solution to a social problem. So it's, that's not something I would um, explicitly defend. But I think that's that comes across quite clearly. One other aspect about this question of parasitism, which I think is relevant for the moment, if we think of what comes after the neoliberal period, and it's this, um, you know, populism, techno-populism, um, increasingly disorganized politics, um, it is also parasitic on a certain still functioning, like neoliberal state and, and uh, the ability to yeah, effectively manage conflicts in some way. And so I, this was very clear to me in Brazil, where Bolsonaro is able to effectively do anti-politics in government. It's an anti-government. It's a, just effectively destructive of state capacity everywhere. And it's only able to do that because things still work, ironically, right? That if there was, if this state machine really started to fall apart, um, you know, roads don't get maintained and, thing, you know, the, the water turns off, then it doesn't work anymore. You can't do your rabble raising culture warrior stuff if 
like people don't have running water anymore where they did in lots of places in Brazil don't have running water yet, but um, you take my point. And I think this will be something that will be interesting in the coming period, looking in much richer societies where the, whether the sort of populism that we've seen over the 2010s will be able to continue the same shtick if things start falling apart. And I, I don't mean, and both in terms of like physical infrastructure, as well as people's living standards and living standards have been sustained by the fact that people have had access to consumption, whether that be through credit or through cheapening commodities. And the pulling away of that rug means that I don't know how much populists can surf on the fact that things still kind of work, but people are angry. Like if things don't work and their people are angry, that changes the ball game entirely, in my opinion. But maybe it changes it in a more populist direction. I mean, yeah, I mean, I guess it's an, it's an interesting point, but I think there is a, there's definitely a dynamic of a sort of society or, a, or an economic structure that's kind of in to a certain extent falling apart that it like, it uses the legitimacy and the resources that it's previously accumulated. This is like Habermas's idea of a legitimation crisis that, you know, you're, you're, you're kind of prepared to run down and destroy the base, like the material, the, the ideological basis of, of the current form of society to keep that structure going just a little bit longer. Um, and I think this is, you know, pretty familiar picture um, in the US today, for example, I think this absolutely fits. And there is a there is a point at which this strategy is no longer no longer um, sustainable, that you've eventually run out of the, those accumulated resources and that, that accumulated state capacity or legitimacy or whatever it is. <clears throat> and that's where, you know, that's where things get interesting, I guess. Okay, excellent. Very good. We will leave this here. Uh, I think some touched on some very interesting points here towards the end, which will be nice to explore um, as we go on. We've already mentioned them in other episodes, but um, again, let us know what you think. Let us know what you found of this. We, I think, all found it very thought-provoking, I'm sure, or I hope anyway, you will uh, as well. And uh, as I said at the end of the interview, uh, we will definitely aim to have uh, Fritz uh, back on. It's his first book, um, and it's a well, it's a hell of a debut album, I guess. So uh, <laughs> I'll be looking uh, to hear more from him. Okay, thank you for listening, everyone. Catch you later. We'll be back next week. Bye bye. <laughs>